Kings 8. We'll read verses 1, verses 1 to 6. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me about all the things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, This is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him, Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. You know, the Nicene Creed, which we are becoming more familiar with over time, towards the end of the Creed, says that uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And and here we, we see that truth on full display we see that God is indeed the Lord, that He is indeed the, the giver of life. And as we come into 2 Kings 8, we draw near to the end of our time with Elijah and Elisha, which is a, a sad thing for me. Some of the most riveting and interesting stories in the narrative portions of the Scripture. But before we come to the end of our time with Elisha, we're going to go back and we're going to cycle back to one of the first events we saw with Elisha. We're going to go back and re-engage with the Shunammite woman that we saw first in chapter 4. You may recall how the story went. The, this woman was incredibly gracious. When Elisha would travel through Shunam, which is the town that she lived in, he would go through often and she invited him over for dinner. And then it turned out that whenever he would go through Shunem, he would go over to her house for dinner. And she decided that she was going to ask her husband if he would be willing to put an addition on the top of the house. So that whenever he came through, not only would he have a, a warm meal, but he'd have a warm bed. And so the husband agrees, and they build this addition on the house. And so Elisha would stay there whenever he was going through town. And Elisha decided he wanted to do something for her. And so he approaches her, and he says, what can I do for you? And he offers a few options, and one of the options is, can I speak to the king on your behalf? And she says, no, my lord, I have a home among my own people. No, I'm content, she says. I, I'm content. I'm not doing this for you that, that you might give something back to me. I'm not doing this that you can perform some kind of miracle for me or beg the king something for me. I, I'm just doing this because I desire to bless you as the Lord's prophet. But Elisha wasn't content with that. He's a persistent fellow. And so he's looking for some way to, to bless him. And Gehazi, who's the the servant of Elisha at that point, he, he says, well, she has no son. And Elisha comes to her and, and says to her, even though her husband was old, they were past childbearing age, she, he says, this time next year, you will have a son. And indeed, 
she bore a son within the year. But then tragedy struck. And the son, the son who had been promised, who had been hoped for, died. And she's, she's distraught. And so she lays the son on Elisha's bed in the upstairs of her house. And she takes off from Mount Carmel where Elisha was. And she won't speak to anybody else until she gets there. And when she gets there, she cries out. She falls at his feet. She grabs onto his ankles. And she says, did I ask you for a son? You gave me a son that I didn't ask you for. I was, I was content to bless you. And you had to stick your nose in my business and give me a son. And I was glad for the son, but now he's dead. And so Elisha had taken off, went back with her to her home, and raised him from the dead. And so we cycle back to that woman now as we come into verses 1 and 2. Now Elijah had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. You know, God has been gracious to this woman. He provided her with a son. He raised her son back to life after he has died. And now she's in danger because there's a famine coming. And so the, the Lord, through the prophet, kind of tips her off that there's a famine coming. And he, he tells her essentially, you need to get out of town. You need to get out of here until the famine is over. And in this, we can, we can compare this woman to a couple of other characters in the Bible, both of whom are named Joseph, right? It was Joseph, the son of Israel, the son of Jacob, who was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. And the Lord had told him that Egypt was going to suffer from famine for seven years, that they should build up food so that they would survive the famine. And then Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, Get out of here. Go to Egypt. Go to Egypt. Herod wants to kill your son. And so they were both tipped off. And this woman as well is warned she has to head off to the land of the Philistines. Now we won't get into this point too much because the focus largely is on the positive in the passage before us this morning. We'll spend time, Lord willing, in the negative next week because there's plenty to go around in the passage next week. But look at what sin has done particularly the sin of the king of Israel and the people of Israel and their idolatry, sin has turned the promised land into the cursed land. And it has turned the land of milk and honey into a land where there is no food. It has taken a land of plenty and made it to be a land of lack. Well, what, a, what a sad state of affairs that this woman has to leave the promised land, and go to the land of the Philistines, right? The wicked, uncircumcised, idolatrous Philistines have more blessing from God at this point than Israel does. Sin has a destructive power, and so she goes off to the land from which Goliath had come, and she goes for seven years, and then as we read in the beginning of the next verse, she returns, but it only mentions she and her son. This makes sense. Her husband almost certainly had died in the time when they were gone off in the land of the Philistines. And again, that makes sense. The, the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, had told Elisha that her husband was old. And so she comes back, a widow, only with her son. And we see this in verse 3. 
At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. Well, she comes back uh, an Israelite widow. And this can remind us of somebody else in the history of Israel. That there was an, another woman who fled with her family off, off to a foreign land during a famine. That Naomi, when there was a famine in the land of Israel, in the land of, of Judea, had fled off. And where did she go? But she went to the land of the Moabites. And there she stayed. And her sons married Moabite women. But then her husband died. And her sons died. And so she returns. She returns husbandless and sonless, and she returns having a desperate need of having someone to provide for her because she has no means to provide for herself. And that's the situation that we find this woman in. Right? She, she leaves off to this foreign land so that she can survive, and that was all well and good. But when she comes back, she has no husband, and she has no means of providing for herself. To use her own words, she no longer has a home among her own people. Now remember that Elisha had offered to go and speak to the king for her. But she didn't have anything that she needed. But now she does need something. And now she has to go speak to the king for herself. And so she returns back to the king to find and to ask for her land back. And you might ask again, well, who was the king? And I would answer again, we don't know. And that's not all that important. Could have been Jehoram, could have been Jehu, whoever it was. They go to the king. There were no good kings in Israel. So whoever it was, it was a, an idolatrous king. So the woman goes back and she asks for her land back. So the, the focus shifts then in verse 4 to the royal court. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. You know, in the absence of, of cable television or Netflix or other things which soak up an inordinate amount of our time and we waste our lives in front of so often, in the absence of that kind of entertainment, the king has, has asked Gehazi to come in and tell him some stories. Right? He wants to be entertained. And so Gehazi comes in and he begins to, to tell the king all these stories. And, and one of the stories he tells, you can imagine, was the axe head. And so he, he tells the king how he threw the stick into the water and the iron axe head began to float. And you can, you can about hear the king's response, can't you? Are you kidding me? The axe head floated and then he goes on and he tells the story of the, the X-lax soup and how it was causing all the guys to, to die and how Elisha had just thrown some flour in and all of a sudden the, the death soup had turned into life soup and the king is just having his, his mind blown. How can, how can these things be? And, and, so, and so Gehazi, at this point, probably the former servant of Elisha because of his greed, begins to act similarly to the apostles, doesn't he? He had seen God's mighty works of salvation with his own eyes. And he goes and he begins to testify as to what he has seen, as to what he knows about God's great acts of salvation before those who do not believe. But there's something missing with the king. He's fascinated. He's entertained by the story. But he doesn't love the God of the stories. There were no good kings in Israel. There were a few precious good kings in Judah, but there were no good kings in Israel. 
And so this king likes to hear the stories. He likes to be entertained by the stories. He, he wants the next episode. He can't wait to get to the next episode. But he does not love the God of Elisha. Though he loves to hear of Elisha. I think there's a good warning in there for us. There's a warning not to dabble in the Scriptures. Not just to enjoy the stories. Not just to be entertained by the God of the Bible. But to love not only the stories and not only the words themselves, but to love the Christ that they point to. You know, I was reminded this week of Benjamin Franklin. I suspect most of you are familiar with Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers, a very wise man in certain ways, kind of like Solomon was wise. He had lots of Proverbs and that kind of stuff. And then you're probably not as familiar, I would guess, at least not most of you, with George Whitfield. Whitfield was a, a powerful preacher, one of the most powerful preachers in sort of the, the modern age, so to speak. And he, and he and Franklin actually had a relationship. They, they corresponded. They wrote to each other. The problem with, with Franklin, problem so to speak, is that he wasn't a Christian. But Franklin loved to listen to Whitfield's preaching. He loved to go and sit and he loved to watch all the crowds. And he even thought it was a good thing that Whitfield preached because Whitfield's preaching turned men without virtue into virtuous men. It turned bad men into good men. And so Franklin would write these, these very flattering notes about what he had heard about Whitfield's preaching and how he had enjoyed it. And he enjoyed it and he was fascinated about it. He even liked it, but he didn't believe the Christ who was preached. And that's precisely what we see with this king. He enjoyed the thrill, but he did not love the God. So then Gehazi, you can imagine like any good storyteller, he kind of works his way up to the high point. He works his way up to the, the grand finale. He's told all these stories. You can imagine he's told more stories than are listed in the Scripture. There's no reason to think that Elisha only did these miracles, only that he did these miracles, just like Jesus did far more miracles than were recorded in the scriptures for us so so he's telling all these stories and now he comes to the big one you can uh, you can imagine how it would go well there was this woman and she invited us in for dinner and then she built this room on the top of her house that we would have some place to stay when we were going through town and elisha wanted to do something but she wouldn't let him do anything for her but I had an idea, right? Greedy Gehazi, I'm sure he was pleased to take credit. I had an idea. She didn't have a son. And so I told, I told Elisha, she doesn't have a son. And you know what? Then Elisha said, she's going to have a son. And lo and behold, you know what happened? She had a son. And you can about imagine that the king is amazed. Well, that's just like Abraham and Sarah. We have, a, we have a, an incredible happening. This is, this is amazing. This is just like it's out of the Bible. But then the servant goes on, well, that's not all. Then the son was still fairly young and he died. Well, that sounds awful cruel. Lord gave that son. Why would he give the son just that she can be tormented by that son's death? But then... Gehazi says, no, no, that's not the end of the story. She laid the son on the bed and she came running off to where we were staying on the 
mountain and she brushed right past me and she goes, she goes right up to the prophet and she lays hold of his ankles and I tried to push her away and he says, no, leave her alone. And, and he says, well, you, you go and run. And so I ran. I, I ran fast. I ran all the way there and I put the staff on the boy's face, but it wouldn't work. And then Elisha came and he laid himself out on the sun, mouth to mouth, nose to nose, eye to eye, hand to hand, leg to leg. And would you believe it, the son who was dead lived again. You can hear him telling this story. And at the very end of the story, you can hear in the background a knock. And who's at the door? We'll read verse 5. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord, the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Now here she is. I mean, what what impeccable timing, right? She's been gone for seven years. It just so happens to be that after these seven years, she walks in at the exact time that her story is being told to the king, and she walks in to ask for help at the exact same time that the king is hearing about all what has happened to her? I mean, what are the chances of that? Of course, there's no chance in God's providence. This is exactly how God was going to satisfy her needs yet one more time. And you see, it's it's ironic, and it's it's really very neat, so to speak. Elisha had asked her, if he could speak to the king on her behalf. And she'd said no. Elisha doesn't make an appearance personally in the story. But yet Elisha and his actions still are what prevail upon the king to provide for her. And so she receives what he had offered, though not in the time that he had offered it. But just take a little bit of a step back and look at the wonder of this. This Shunammite woman, she is, she is exhibit A of God's grace in the time and the ministry of Elisha. And why her? Why her? Why not any of the other godly persons in Israel at the time? Why her? Well, we don't know why. Right? It's like the Lord says in Exodus and like Paul quotes again in the book of Romans, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. And I will show compassion to anyone I choose. In the mysterious will of God, he chose her. Praise the Lord that he chooses weak persons to show his strength. And then as soon as Gehazi gets his, gets his jaw off the ground, he says to the king, This is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Now, now I'm not a Bible translator. I don't often take issue with, with Bible translators because uh, to a man, they're, they're, they're brighter than me and they certainly know their Hebrew better than me. But I don't know how you translate this sentence and don't put an exclamation point at the end. Right? Do, do you really think that after telling all these stories and telling this woman's story, that when the knock comes at the door and the woman answers, he says, 
this king. This is the woman. Woman, meet king. King, meet woman. No, I mean, you have to imagine that he says, look, this is the woman. This is the one I was telling you about. This is the son. This is the one who was dead. Can, can you believe it? Here she is. I, I'm not making this up. And the king says, you've got to tell me for yourself what happened. And the woman tells him exactly what had happened to him. But, but here he, he says something. This, this is the boy that was raised to life. Or it's the same phrase we saw earlier, who was restored to life. And we see that four times in this passage, that same phrase, restored to life. We see it one time in verse 1, and we see it three times in verse 5. Restored to life, restored to life, restored to life, restored to life. And when you see something repeated that many times in such short succession, it tells you that that's the main point. The main point is that God gives life. God had given life to the Son in the first place. He'd given life to the Son again. And He will once more give life to this woman. God gives life. And God sustains life. God does not give something perniciously just to rip it away torment someone, God gives life. When God begins a work, God carries His work through to completion. It's like we read in Philippians. right? The one who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We see it all over the Scriptures. Just a, a few examples. The author of Hebrews notes that God had said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And in Romans 8, we read this as well. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You see that the story goes from eternity past to eternity future. It begins with God knowing His people. Not just knowing of them, but actually knowing them. And then He, he calls them. He predestines them. And that's in eternity past. And then in the present, He justifies. He creates a relationship with them. He makes them right. He becomes their father. And they become His children. And He conforms them into the image of Christ. He makes them look more holy and more righteous. But, the, but it doesn't end there. Where does it go? It goes all the way to the end when they are glorified. And they become finally and fully alive. That God begins the work way back there, and He never finishes the work because it goes on forever, God being faithful to them for all of eternity. God sees things through from beginning to end. Just one more example from the very end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You have to wonder... This is a woman of great faith, so I, I have no doubt that she did not give in to the temptation. But you have to expect that the temptation was present to wonder if God had forgotten. Right? She has to go off to this foreign land and live among the Philistines. Then her husband dies. And then she comes back home and she has no home. 
She has no land. She has no money. She has no means of providing for herself. And all the gods of all the nations, all the false gods of all the nations around were fickle gods who were said to give one moment and take away arbitrarily the next. If you didn't do the right thing or say the right thing or be the right thing. But just the opposite is true here. That God gave life and God is going to keep that life and sustain that life all the way through to the end. And we see that God uses this providential encounter with the king to provide for her needs as we come into verse 6. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. The king honors her request. He gives her back her land. Not only does he give her the land, right? It, it, was, it was common practice in those days that, that if, if, a part of, if a piece of land was left deserted, if it was left empty, it would become the property of the king. So when she comes to ask the king for her land back, she's not just asking for it to be taken from, from Joe Israelite and given to her. She's asking for the king to give something that he has declared rightly belongs to him. Right? And so when she comes, she's asking for him to give her back something that had belonged to her, but now by right, the king could really say belonged to him. And so she's asking to have back what is hers, and the king hears her request, and he grants her request. He gives her what she has asked for, and not only that, but he gives her all the money, however meager it might have been, all the money that was made off the land while she was gone. She doesn't have to start from scratch, but she has enough to provide for herself and her son until the land can be worked in the next season and there can be food brought off the land again. So I want us to, to briefly just catch a few points. First one we've already talked about is don't, don't fall into the trap of the king. Don't fall into the trap of being entertained or enamored with God, but failing to love and honor God. That's a great danger for those of us who know the Bible. To know the Bible, to love its stories, to love how it all fits together, but not actually to love God. It's a great danger. And as conservative, reformed evangelicals, which I suspect most of us are it's very easy to get caught up in our heads and leave our heart behind. Don't let your head outpace your heart. But secondly, we see a great generosity in this king. He, he hears the story, and here she comes in. And he could have just, he could have just said, no, no, I, you already got a son. You, you've got a lot of things you didn't already have, right? You, I don't need to give you your land back. He could have said that. And he, he could have also said, well, here's your land. And he could have kept all the money that was made off it in those seven years when his men had worked the ground. No, he gives her the land and he gives her the means. And this is a wicked king. This is an idolatrous king. And even this idolatrous king gave generously. 
Will not our great and glorious King Jesus give more generously than a wicked king? Isn't our king greater and better than all the kings of Israel? He is the Lord Jesus who is the king. He says in John 15, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. All right, there, there's two dangers to us as we read that, as we read that passage, right? The, the first we're well aware of, the, the first danger is to say, well, I can ask for whatever I want, right? I would, like a, I would like a 2019 Ferrari and enough gas cars, cards to, to keep it fueled for the rest of my life, and I would like uh, this, and I would like this, and I would like this, and well, the Lord says, whatever I ask for, I can get, right? That's the temptation, but that's not what it says. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. In other words, if you ask for things which are pleasing to me, you will receive them. That's right. The danger is to go off the other end. The other danger is as people who are allergic to the health and wealth, prosperity, name it, claim it gospel, to just read John 15 and skip right over verse 7 because we don't want to deal with the consequences of reading it out loud because we don't actually believe what it says that Jesus is a generous king. That he does delight to give good gifts to his people. And that he is kind. That we have a kind, caring, loving king. Hebrews 4 verse 16 gives us this confidence as well. After speaking about how Jesus is our high priest, we read this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, when this Shunammite woman comes before her king, she would have reason to come trembling a little bit, uncertain of what she'll find and what what she'll meet when she comes through the doors into the throne room. But we are told to draw near with confidence to the King of Kings. See, there's a, there's a major difference between this woman's king and our king. And the difference is that this woman's king loved her story. But our king loves us loves us so much that he would lay down his life for us. Then we see that that is what God does. He gives us life. Paul says in Ephesians again, you were dead in your transitions and your transgressions and sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. And the whole, the whole story revolves around life. It revolves around food and life, food which is necessary for sustaining life. And you go back and you think through all the miracles with food, right? There's the, there's the manna on the ground. There's the feeding of the thousands. There, there's just the, there's the sustaining, life-giving miracles which show up again and again and again in the Scripture. And, and what, what is the main point? What is, what is the very focus of all of these miracles? The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the, the manna in the wilderness. What is the, what is the main focus? The main focus is that God gives life and God sustains life. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
You know, we come to the table in just a few moments. And we come, by God's grace, as those who are alive, who've been made alive in Christ. But we also come as those who need to stay alive, who need to have that life sustained. We ought to come with the humility of knowing that if God did not give us grace for one day, we would fall away just like that. We need God's grace to keep us in Christ, to keep us alive as he has given us life. But unlike this woman, we come to this king who provides for us regularly and faithfully. And we come not for land that satisfies for a few fleeting years until we die. We come for the bread of life, which brings eternal life. Now this, this table tells us that God has every intention of finishing what he has started. That he began a good work in us. And he will bring this work through to completion. That he has made us alive. And just as bread and food keeps us alive from day to day to day, so too Christ will keep us day to day to day until the most glorious of days when we eat and drink with Christ in his kingdom, when we are finally and fully and perfectly alive. Let's pray. God, we thank you again that you are not a fickle God like the gods of the nations. We thank you that you are not, you are not a God who would give something just to take it away, to be cruel or harsh. But we are thankful that you are generous and kind and that you will finish what you've started in our lives. God, we have absolute need of you. We have need to have our hearts opened in a way that this king never had his heart opened. And we have a need to receive mercy and grace just as this woman had a need to receive mercy and grace. And we know that as this, our sister in the story, received grace from her king, you, our great King of Kings, give mercy and grace regularly. Do you sustain us in word, sacrament, by the power of your Spirit? And so we pray that in all things we will trust, and in all things we will look to you for all we have need of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.